This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends. You're listening to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. This is episode 155, entitled Hymnic Worship in Revelation Chapter 4. I appreciate you so much for joining us this week at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. Please be on the lookout for a new YouTube channel linked with the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. As I can find precious time to record and edit while my newborn son is asleep, I will work towards the production of those videos, so please look forward to it. In this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, we will begin looking at the hymns that are scattered throughout the book of Revelation. We will be doing this in order to see what they have to say about the early church's worship, specifically the worship involving God and Jesus. There are seven hymns within Revelation, no surprise there, because seven is a popular number in Revelation. And each of these hymns consists of a call and response. And the narrative of Revelation actually expects its readers to participate in these hymns as an expression of their obedience. Seeing how many modern worship songs are directly influenced by Revelation's hymns, it would seem that the church has taken a liking to them. This is all the more interesting because many readers of Revelation today don't think that participating in correct worship is an actual application from the book. And yet I'm going to demonstrate that correct worship responses is one of the many applications that was intended by John the Revelator when Revelation was originally written. Will we discover in the first hymn of Revelation that the true God is actually a trinity of persons? Or will Revelation authoritatively reveal that the one God is a single, undivided person. Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at the first hymn of Revelation located in chapter 4. This particular call and response hymn is in Revelation 4, verses 8 through 11. And the four living creatures each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, The twenty-four elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, 
Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. That's Revelation 4, verses 8 through 11 in the New American Standard Bible. So we begin by looking at the call portion of this hymn. The call comes from the four living creatures. These are heavenly creatures, and they offer the call of this particular hymn of worship. When we look earlier in Revelation chapter 4 at these four creatures, they seem to represent different facets of creation. So it's almost as if creation itself is inviting the readers of Revelation to respond in worship. It's not unlike what we see in Psalm 19 verse 1, where the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Psalm 19 verse 1, where the heavens and the expanse are actively celebrating worship. They're involved in worship. They are speaking of God's glory and the mighty works of his hands. So by Revelation depicting creation in the form of these four living creatures symbolically telling and beginning this worship hymn, that is not something that is brand new to Revelation. That was already there in the Psalms a thousand years earlier. So who is the object of this hymn? The object of this hymn is clearly the one seated upon the throne. And even that description in Greek implies one particular person. It is the one person who is seated upon the throne. Now throne, as an image, is a major emphasis within this particular chapter in Revelation chapter 4. The Greek noun for throne, which is thronos, appears 14 times in this chapter, which is actually the largest concentration of throne language anywhere within the Bible, Old and New Testament. Clearly, the throne and the one seated upon it is a major theme within this chapter. And of course, it appears in this hymn quite a few times. And then we have, of course, the one seated upon the throne, looking at that particular verb which is singular, to go with the pronoun that is used there, the one seated upon the throne, that is also singular. And so we have this verb appearing five times within this chapter, which is also the largest concentration anywhere in the Bible. Now in this particular hymn, the call alludes to Isaiah chapter 6. Specifically, Isaiah 6 and verse 3, where the 8th century prophet Isaiah beholds a heavenly vision involving six-winged creatures. And that's what we see in this hymn in Revelation. We have six-winged creatures that are around the throne and specifically around the one seated upon the throne. In the vision of Isaiah, there is one seated upon the throne, just as we see in Revelation chapter 4. 
Now, in neither Isaiah chapter 6 nor Revelation chapter 4 do we see that the one seated upon the throne is more than one person. It is very clear. It is a single individual, not a single being that could be divided into multiple persons. There is one single person that is enthroned in these visions. The enthroned God, according to the Old Testament and the New Testament, is one single person. And Revelation is drawing on this image from Isaiah as it recreates this particular aspect of worship. Now, in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3, the Hebrew regards the object of worship as Yahweh Sabaoth, which in Hebrew means Yahweh of hosts. It could be translated Yahweh of armies. Of course, in modern English translations, the divine name Yahweh will get rendered into the four capital letters L-O-R-D. So it'll say the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. Now the Septuagint of Isaiah 6 and verse 3 pretty accurately translates the Hebrew into Kyrios Sabaoth, taking the divine name as a single Lord, not as multiple lords, as a single Lord. Now what we can see in Revelation as it is re-rendering Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3 is that it doesn't exactly quote it verbatim from either the Hebrew text or from the Septuagint. Formerly in Isaiah 6 and verse 3, we have the object of worship, which is Yahweh of hosts. But in Revelation chapter 4, it is Kyrios o Theos o Pantocrator, which is the Lord God, the Almighty. This fancy word, Pantocrator, means Almighty, and it's a pretty regular way that the Septuagint will translate the Hebrew word Sabaoth, which we regard it as host or armies. It just doesn't actually appear that way in the Septuagint of Isaiah chapter 6, but it's used dozens and dozens of times throughout the Septuagint for that particular Hebrew word. Now, Pantocrator, the word for Almighty, appears, guess what? seven times in Revelation, and it is always used of the Father. It is never used of the Lamb, and is never used of the Holy Spirit. So Revelation consistently regards the one seated upon the throne as the Father of Jesus, which bears this title, the Almighty. Now while the Hebrew of Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3 will say, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts, and that the whole earth is full of your glory. The book of Revelation, in chapter 4, is going to give a new line. It's going to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was and who is to come. In this particular phrase, who is and who was and who is to come, has no parallel within the Old Testament or within the Septuagint. And this phrase in Greek again emphasizes the fact that the Lord God is a single person, using multiple singular pronouns and singular verbs within that particular phrase. In fact, you have the one who is is a singular pronoun and a verb, the one who was, singular pronoun, singular verb, 
the one who is to come, again, singular pronoun and singular verb. It's just like one person, one person, one person, bam, bam, bam. You get the sense there that it's highly emphasizing the identity of God, especially within the Greco-Roman world where Christians were often tempted to compromise their worship of God for other gods. The Roman emperor, Zeus, Apollo, you name it. Revelation has say, this is the true God, and this is the identity of the true God, and let there be no confusion regarding the identity of the God of Jesus. Now, the phrase, the one who is and who was and who is to come, being used to describe the one who is seated upon the throne, emphasizes the span of his enthroned rule. The one seated upon the throne bears the authority of a ruler, and that authority has been eternal. So that is the call section of this particular hymn. We have creation uttering the call that invites the readers of Revelation to respond appropriately. They identify the object of worship, and they allude to Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3 in regarding this God as the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who was and who is and who is to come. Let's move to our, our second point, which is the role of the readers in the call and response hymn. It's best to refer to these hymns not as ordinary hymns, but they are specifically call and response hymns. You don't see call and response hymns elsewhere in the New Testament like in Colossians 1 or Philippians 2, they specifically seem to be located here in Revelation because they intend for the readers of Revelation to respond and to participate, specifically within the response part of the call and response hymn. Let's see what that looks like. So the response, according to Revelation chapter 4, specifically comes from the 24 elders. Now, who are these 24 elders? Earlier in Revelation, in chapter 4 and verse 4, it said, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. That's Revelation 4, verse 4. Now, we have this description here of 24 seated elders that have white clothes and crowns on their heads. And all of these descriptions were formerly used of believers, according to Revelation. If you've read up to this point in chapter 4, you would have noticed that all of those descriptions were used of the ideal readers. In particular, Thrones were promised to believers in Revelation 3.21. White garments were promised to believers in Revelation 3, verse 5. Even the crowns were promised to believers in Revelation 2, verse 10. Now, by regarding the believers as 24 elders, this is drawing upon the fact that there were 24 priests that worked within the Jerusalem temple, according to 1 Chronicles 24. That's how I remember it, by the way, because there's 24 priests in the 24th chapter of 1 Chronicles. 
And it's interesting that Revelation begins in chapter 1 by identifying believers as priests. So here we have priestly believers functioning within these 24 class of priests. And they are worshiping the God that has been praised, guess what, as the one who is holy. So we have the holiness of the responders. It seems that the response portion refers to the ideal believing readers of Revelation. So if you are a Christian, you need to read yourself into this hymn's response. Please do not read these 24 elders that appear to be the ideal readers based on what the seven letters to the churches said prior to getting to chapter 4. They suggest that these 24 elders are believers, symbolically portrayed in this vision of heaven. So this implies that there's application that's involved here. Don't think of these 24 elders as persons other than yourself. You are, if you are a faithful Christian, a member of this 24 classes of priestly, enthroned, white-garmented, crowned believers. Now, the actions within worship in this particular call and response hymn involve three discernible things. Count them. One, two, three. So the first thing that we note is that these 24 elders fall down before him. That is a physical act of prostration. as actually getting off of your chair or getting out of your pew and falling down onto the ground before the one seated upon the throne. It's not simply singing a song and raising your hand. It is an act of worship, of bowing down and bending the knee to this true God. The second thing we note is that they worship him. This comes from the popular Greek word for worship, proskuneo. And the BDAG lexicon defines proskuneo as to express an attitude or gesture one's complete dependence on or submission to a high authority figure, to fall down and worship, do obstinance to, prostrate oneself before, do reverence to, welcome respectfully. All those definitions are bound together within this word for worship. And I like the fact that it emphasizes the complete dependence and submission to this authority figure. So worshiping involves the act of saying, I will obey you. I will be faithful to you. It's not just singing a song because the song sounds good. It's participating in a lifestyle of obedient submission and obstinance to this one seated upon the throne. The third thing that we see the 24 elders do is that they cast their crowns down before him, and in doing so, they are actually singing. Now remember, these crowns are promised to the faithful believers for their obedience, for their loyalty, and so they're actually giving to God that which he has already given them. God has shared his rule in positions of rulership with faithful and believing humanity, and 
Humanity responds in worship by acknowledging the God who has ultimately shared that rule with believers. Now, as they cast their crowns before him, they are saying, namely they're singing, the response portion of this hymn. And when we look at what they actually sing, it's pretty noteworthy. There is a declaration of worthiness. Worthy are you. There's also a declaration of the object of worship. This object is our God. They're not worshiping the other gods of the Roman world, either Greek or imperial. They're worshiping this one person seated upon the throne. We also see in their worship a vocal reason for why God is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. And it's difficult to point this out in an English translation, but there's emphasis within the Greek. So the reason given for why God is worthy to receive power and honor and glory is, according to the Greek, si ektisas ta panta. Right there, it's you created all things. And there's an emphasis on that you, that particular pronoun in Greek, because there's an independent pronoun that's there outside of the verb, and that is meant for emphasis. It's not just saying in Revelation 4.11, because you created all things. What it's saying is because you created all things. There is a heavy emphasis there on that singular pronoun. And so if you're taking notes in your Bible, you would want to underline that pronoun you because it's meant to be emphasized. And you can't emphasize that in an English translation. It's very, very important. It's not just saying that God created all things. It's saying that you, highlight you particular, you did it. We also see a mention of the pre-existence of God's plans and purposes. It's very interesting that this appears within a worship hymn. That's something that Christians don't tend to think about when it comes to worship. We can see, according to 4 verse 11, that because of God's will, and this noun could be translated as will or desire or wish, because of God's will, those that were created, they were and then they were created. And the point there is that they were already within God's will, within God's foreknowledge, within his plans, within his purposes. They were already there, and then they were created. That's the only way to make sense of what is being said there. This one person who created all things and all people, all of those things were within God's will, within his desire, and then they were created. This is what is called notional preexistence or preexistence within God's foreknowledge. And it's interesting here that the very first hymn involves an acknowledgement of a God who creates out of his foreknowledge. And the things that come into existence formerly existed within God's will and his foreknowledge. So, in conclusion, we have observed that worship is a significant theme within the book of Revelation. 
In fact, seven discernible hymns are located throughout the narrative of this book. The first of these hymns is heard when the reader joins John's trance-like vision of heaven where the object of worship is the one seated upon the throne. We first noted that the call portion of this call and response hymn comes from creation itself, poetically symbolized with four living creatures. Day and night, they announce the holiness of the one seated upon the throne. In doing so, they allude to Isaiah chapter 6, where the object of worship is Yahweh alone. The hymn's call designates Yahweh as the Almighty and the one who is, who was, and who is to come, highlighting the eternality of his reign as well as his oneness. Second, we observed that the response portion of this call and response hymn was placed into the mouths of Revelation's ideal readers, the believing Christians. In other words, one of the applications that the book of Revelation seeks to evoke from its readers is that they would participate in this worship session, which appears to not be ceasing day nor night. Believers respond in many tangible ways in this hymn, by physically falling down before God, by worshiping him in an obedient life, and by offering to him that with which he has blessed them. Vocally, the believers sing about God's worthiness in that he alone, and no one else, created all things. Furthermore, the hymn honors the way in which the Creator creates by detailing the pre-existing will of God, wherein all things conceptually existed before they were brought into existence. In other words, the hymnic response of the ideal readers praises God as the only one who created and as the one who possessed all creation in his foreknowledge before creating them. From a practical standpoint, those listeners of the podcast should seek to integrate Revelation's hymns into their worship services, especially the call portion that invites worship and the response portion wherein the application can take place. The depiction of the one seated upon the throne in the first hymn of the book Revelation is completely Unitarian in its theology, worship, and application. The oneness and unity of God is praised and actively put into practical application for those who seek to be obedient to the text of the book of Revelation. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Join us next week as we look at the second call and response hymn located in Revelation chapter 5. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote these very important truths. 
You can support the podcast for free by writing an honest review on iTunes and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you feel led to donate to the podcast, you may check out the episode's description for a PayPal link. I want to make sure to acknowledge the editor and the worker of post-production on this podcast. His name is Dustin Williams, and he does an excellent job for me and for all listeners every single week. Thank you, Dustin, for your work. My name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks, take care and be safe.